0: Be clear that a top executive is surely not afraid to take your call, and most are rescuers. They will rescue the assistant and just say, put him through, I'll handle this. By now, often the CEO comes to the phone just to have the assistant stop coming back to him. He will be gruff, a little impatient. That means that the first words out of your mouth have to be sharp and to the point and sound important. Whatever you do, don't now turn into a salesperson and ask him, how are you today? salesperson. Maintain your authority and have a fantastic two-minute opening worked out like the script ideas provided in this chapter on the educational approach. Be clever, be confident, that's key, and know that your tone of voice has five times more impact on their perception than the actual words that you use. Step 6. Present the Executive Briefing. This step has been thoroughly covered in Chapter 4 on strategy and Chapter 8 on effective presentations, but here's a review of the key points to remember about building your core story. Use market data, not product data. Set the buying criteria in your favor. Find the smoking gun, the one thing that undeniably positions you over everyone else. Make sure you hit their pain points. Include your own pitch for your product or service only after you have covered the education thoroughly. The biggest mistake I see salespeople make is pitching themselves too early in their free education. You promised an education, so you need to deliver. The beautiful thing about the core story sales approach is that you give them a lot of great, usable information. And then the presentation funnels down to where you've built rapport and trust. You can then say, I have a little two-minute section about our company. Would you like to hear it? If you did a good job with the first part of your presentation, no one will refuse. I've helped companies use the core story free education strategy a number of ways. Here are some options. One, all your salespeople are trained as speakers, and each one of them can take these education-based sales tools into the field, get their own appointments, and present. Just make darn sure that they can present and that they don't die out there. Test every single salesperson. You might even want to have a contest for best presenter and put some money on the table that a few of the presenters can win. This makes everyone practice the material. Plus, it forces everyone to watch each other's presentations in which they'll learn many different approaches that their colleagues may have developed. 2. Your sales rep can just sell the appointment, and you can use only your absolute best presenters to present the material. I worked with a company in Norway that perfected this method. It found that one of its presenters was closing three or four times more sales than anyone else. So we worked out a small override for her, and the sales reps all sold clients into her webinars. The sales reps then would follow up on their own clients to close the sale. 3. Naturally, this can be done in person if the sale is big enough and worth the investment to send live bodies to prospects. If it's possible, the rep who made that appointment should attend the meeting and then should also be the person responsible for following up after the appointment and closing the sale. Naturally, it's better if this is all done in one meeting. The speaker does the presentation with a call to action at the end, like a free assessment or audit of their current methods. Right there, on the spot, the rep sets this up, if possible. Important note, only one person can present to any client, any time. If the rep goes with the speaker, a person clearly great at presenting data and keeping the attention of the prospect, then that rep's job in that room is to support the efforts of the speaker. I was once in a meeting where the rep started doodling. He had seen the info so many times that he was bored, so he acted that way. How do you think that made the prospect feel about the information? I felt like reaching over and slapping the pen out of the rep's hand. So make sure that the rep is utterly riveted by the amazing data presented. I've also seen cases where two people presented and basically competed for the attention of the client. The client's head looked like he was center court watching a tennis match, his head bobbing back and forth between the two opponents. The web now makes it so that you can use both options. The rep can present over the web, or the rep can make the sale for the prospect to attend the web seminar, and the company's best presenter can be the one to do the actual orientation or executive briefing. Check out www.gotomeeting.com or www.livemeeting.com or www.vlinklive.com, providers that enable you to present images over the web while you are also on the phone with the prospect. This is a very cool way to sell. No one has to travel, and sometimes it's easier to get an appointment with prospects if they don't have to commit to having you in their office. On the other hand, it's also a lot easier for them to not show up. So if you take the web seminar route, you must build excellent follow-up pieces that keep the prospect hot on the idea. If my salespeople talk to the prospect on a Monday and set up an appointment for two days later, the prospect will get three communication pieces from us. One comes immediately to confirm the appointment and sell the heck out of the content that they're going to see. The next day the prospect will get a brief one-page letter from another executive who has seen the material and is raving about how valuable it is. Then the day of the appointment the prospect will get a second letter raving about how good the content is. Recently we developed a worksheet that requires prospects to fill in the blanks. The prospects look at the blanks and their brains say, wow, I want to know the answer to that question. For example, our worksheet has things like, Blank is the single most important trait shared by entrepreneurs who grow their company to $100 million per year and beyond. The worksheet has two pages of teasers like that. When we started offering this worksheet, our show-up rate to the web seminar increased by 20%. Conclusion An education-based Dream 100 strategy has worked again and again to help many companies penetrate impenetrable accounts or to attract those best buyers in the best neighborhoods. The biggest weakness I notice when I see companies utilize this strategy is that either they are too inconsistent or they give up too quickly. Remember that getting the best buyers is a process, not a single event. It's a campaign to stay in their face forever. This might not replace what you're doing now, but it should at least be an additional effort that you police really well through your organization. So while you are doing everything else you are doing, make sure you have a consistent and constant additional effort to go after those best buyers and then make sure you treat them like they are special once they get into your realm. To build the ultimate sales machine, you must devote machine-like precision to chase and tackle those dream prospects. 10. Sales Skills. The deeper you go, the more you will sell. Most companies leave far too much of the sales process up to individual salespeople. Yet, to create the ultimate sales machine, you must work as a team, utilizing everyone's brain power to drill down, perfect, and procedurize each aspect of the sales process. In this chapter, we combine workshop training with the perfect sales process for any company that wants to slaughter the competition and be king of the jungle. Star salespeople will improve on everything you give them, but at least if you set standards, you know the minimum performance of each person on your team. Without this kind of training, the interaction with the buyer can vary enormously depending on the mood, skills, attitude, and training of that salesperson. If you could be a fly on the wall during a sales call with your salespeople, you might be horrified to hear some of the things they are saying. Sales is a science that has been studied and well-defined. This chapter gives you a simple blueprint for creating sales activities that work, As the top producer in every sales job I've ever had, I have dedicated myself to understanding the science of sales. This is not some abstract theory. It is the result of in-depth experience in the trenches on the front lines of capitalism, as a top producer and then as a line executive who increased performance of every sales team I've ever worked with. If you don't understand sales and you haven't defined it, you can't improve it. This chapter outlines the seven steps that every salesperson should go through in influencing a buying decision. The key for any company is to create the policies and procedures you learn here and work with your sales team to consistently follow them. As I've mentioned, I give spot quizzes, ensuring that my sales team can define every inch of the sales process. All sales reps and managers should be able to answer specific questions like what are the five steps to gaining deeper rapport with every prospect and what are the six questions to ask every prospect and the reasons we ask them. Whether you are a dentist who needs to persuade people to spend $2,000 on a new bridge, a purchasing agent who needs to persuade your vendor to give you a better price, a customer service person who needs to calm down an irate customer, or a salesperson in the trenches or on the telephone who needs that prospect to buy that product or service, this chapter outlines the seven steps to any sale that will turbocharge your bottom line. Levels of Learning If you've ever been part of a highly trained team, you know the sense of confidence that comes with that. The secret to building an excellent sales force or team of any kind is in repeating core training on basic sales skills again and again. The lowest level of learning is memorization. It is easy to memorize the seven steps to every sale, but that does not mean that you can apply them. However, it is an excellent starting point. The highest level of learning is known as synthesis or subconscious competence. This means that you have learned the material so well that you can synthesize it into your own style and method of doing things. Synthesis requires a lot of repetition and practice. To achieve synthesis in your sales team, begin by having them commit the seven steps to memory, then set procedures and polish each skill area until your people are masters of each. Sales Step 1. Establish Rapport When I ran a magazine for Charlie Munger, we took it from number 15 in the market to number one in a single year. The biggest player in the market was four times our size. When it saw our success in our market niche, it started a magazine to compete directly with us. When this magazine launched, the publisher made offers to my clients that they knew I would never match. Offers like buy two advertising pages and get two pages for free. Since my clients trusted me entirely, many of them even asked me what I thought of this new publication. If I had immediately attacked the new magazine, I would have lost credibility. Instead, I would casually say, You know what? My philosophy is this. Let them get successful, and once they've proven themselves, then put your money in there. I would not let them build their success by experimenting with your money. The magazine struggled for six months, unable to land many advertisers. And when I'd see an advertiser in there, I'd get on a plane and go take that client out for lunch. Somewhere along the line, we'd get around to talking about the competitor, and I'd make my little speech. Here's the key. All my clients were also my friends. To advertise in a directly competitive magazine was almost a violation of our relationship, especially if my clients discussed this with me, and I made sure they did, and we, the client and I, mutually decided to wait and see if the magazine became successful. With everyone waiting, no one advertised in the magazine, and it closed its doors in six months flat. Gone. If you are friends with your clients, it is very hard for another salesperson to take them away from you that needs to be part of your sales process most companies leave this up to the individual salespeople in my companies we built in opportunities parties events boat trips you name it to become friends with our clients this might not be practical for every company but the more you create a sense of community and friendship with your clients the stronger the grip you will have on your market practically every client I've had has become a friend Most have dined at my home or I at theirs. Some have even stayed at my house, been on my boat, talked into the wee hours. Those bonds aren't easily breakable. In my case, I have to say that this is part of my nature anyway. I'd rather be a friend, and I'm a devoted friend, so I work at these relationships and seek out occasions to connect. But not every salesperson is built this way. So, set up procedures or opportunities to build relationships and have fun with the client think of your favorite client relationships right now. If you're business to business, answer these questions. How many children do they have? What are their ages and names? Have you been to their home or vice versa? what are their hobbies? Do you know what will make them more successful? Do you know their goals in life? Where are they from? What is their history? That's real rapport. If you sell business to consumer, you need to know what small rapport-building opportunities you can put into place, especially if they are your better buyers. A restaurant, a bookstore, a supermarket, a copy center, I don't care what kind of business you're in, you need to make client rapport part of the process. And every person working for you needs training on this. Role-play this and have a constant focus on client rapport so they'll know that part of their job is to win people over, to create a bond wherever possible. When you meet someone new, you need to look that person in the eye and be overtly friendly. Ask them how they are. If you sell retail, ask them if they've been in your store before. Look at Home Depot. You can ask any clerk where something is, and instead of just saying aisle 5, the clerk will take you right to the item you're looking for even if she has to walk across the entire store. Waitstaff, receptionists, customer service people, and yes, especially salespeople, all need to understand that building rapport is a standard job requirement. You will find that you close a much higher percentage of sales if you have good, solid rapport with your prospects. According to the Encarta World English Dictionary, rapport is an emotional bond or friendly relationship between people, based on mutual liking, trust, and a sense that they understand and share each other's concerns. So how do you achieve this mutual liking, trust, and sense that you share their concerns? Let's break it down. One thing you can do to establish trust is to make your prospects feel that they are working with an expert. As you learned in Chapter 4, selling breaks rapport. No one wants to feel like you're selling them, while educating builds it. That is why I have every single company that I work with design a core story packed with data of great value to your prospects. As said, even if your salespeople never actually present the information as a cohesive whole, knowing it and offering it at appropriate times can elevate their status in the eyes of a buyer. So, one of the best ways for establishing rapport is for your sales staff to be more knowledgeable than any other sales staff they could possibly run into. When the salesperson is highly knowledgeable, it translates to influence. Here's a simple example. I was looking for a good book to read for a trip I was taking. The clerk in the bookstore was extremely knowledgeable and well-read. I bought three books, all based upon his recommendation. On a broader scale, if you develop a core story and create an orientation to offer your prospects a community education to business owners to help them succeed, You are going above and beyond the call of duty, and you will be a champion in your market. Providing information that helps your clients succeed helps you build trust and respect. Your clients and prospects will be happy to hear from you. Even better, they'll start to call you to get your input on decisions they're making for their business. Here are some other ways to help establish rapport. Ask great questions. Establish rapport-building questions that your sales team will ask every prospect. Teach your salespeople to use those questions to make a connection, to find common interests. Also, get personal. As fast as you can, get into the person's world. You can start with questions that seem like business questions, but they are personal questions. How long have you been doing this? Oh, really, how do you like it? What got you into it? What did you do before this? These kinds of questions help you create a deeper bond. Remember, everyone's favorite person to talk about is themselves. Can you go deeper? Ask these. What do you do for fun? What do you do to be creative? What are your hobbies? Naturally, you'll have to build up to some of these. In consumer situations, such as in a restaurant or retail environment, you can ask, are you familiar with our store, restaurant, company? This gives you the opportunity to do a strategic pitch, as you learned in Chapter 4, but it can also lead to more personal questions, such as, Are you from this area? These are harmless questions, but they connect you to the person in a way that goes beyond just making the sale. Have a sense of humor. Have fun together. My stockbroker calls me with the joke of the week, and they're actually funny. Now, the Internet makes it easy to forward a good joke, but don't be one of those people who sends every little joke. My clients know that if I send them something, it's going to be really funny. Therefore, my emails get opened and answered. When I sold advertising, I would go out of my way scouring hundreds of jokes to find a great one. I'd sit there and handwrite personalized notes to 30 to 50 big clients and send the joke with the note. Each client probably thought he or she was the only one receiving this because it came with a handwritten note. Again, don't do this too often. It's just another rapport-building opportunity. Commiserate. Misery loves company. If the client wants to complain about anything from business to personal life, be a good supportive ear. You'll escalate the bonding process. Be empathetic and care about them. Be more interested in them than anyone else has ever been. There's a saying, if you want to be interesting, be interested. If you want to be fascinating, be fascinated. Find the common ground. I had a terrible time bonding with one client until we discovered that we both liked the same band. In fact, we grew up listening to the same album. It was like a magic key to unlocking a bond that we share to this day. Find the common ground. Hunt for the things that you can relate to. Mirror. If you match your body language and tonality to what your prospects are doing and sounding like, they'll make the subconscious connection that you are like them. For example, if the client leans forward, you lean forward. If the client tilts her head slightly, you can tilt yours the same way. Exercise. Workshop rapport skills with your salespeople. Ask each person to suggest three ways to establish deeper levels of rapport with your prospects and clients. Naturally, you will get some obvious answers, such as ask good questions and be interested in them. But for most companies, this will be the first time you've drilled them on what establishes good rapport. And that's the first step in making rapport building a standard procedure in every sales interaction. You will also find that your best salespeople are doing things that no one else is doing. They're asking better and more in-depth questions. They're specifically looking for things they have in common with every prospect. When you have five or six great methods to establish rapport, do a workshop on each one of them and turn them into procedures so that every salesperson can do them every time. Revisit this material regularly, drilling your salespeople. How long have they, the client, worked there? How many kids do they have? Some companies keep all this information in a client database, so even a new person can gain all kinds of insights on the client. Other companies have contests to see who can learn the most about their clients. The bottom line is that rapport can make you bulletproof, increase referrals, boost your closing ratio, and help you become more and more sought out by your clients. Work on this regularly sales step two: qualify the buyer find the need qualifying buyers means finding out what they are looking for in your product or service and what factors will influence them to buy in this step you need to learn everything you can about their existing buying criteria but the key to developing your ultimate sales machine is to reset that buying criteria so that your product or service becomes the most logical choice To reset a customer's buying criteria in favor of your product or service, you must begin by gaining a complete understanding of his or her current buying criteria. Develop the six to ten questions that you would like to know about every prospect. Drill these questions into your salespeople until every one of them can recite them by heart. When I sold advertising, for example, asking the following questions was mandatory. 1. How do your customers find out about you right now? Two, what's the most effective way you have for gaining new clients? Three, what's the amount of your average sale? This enabled us to cost justify, meaning if their product cost $400 and the ad cost $4,000, then they only needed 10 sales to justify the cost of the advertising. Four, what are the three biggest problems you're having in your area of business? Get their pain and help solve it. Five, how long have you worked here? Six, how'd you get started? Seven, what are your goals for your company? Eight, what are your goals for yourself? Nine, what are your criteria for making a decision about buying a product or service like ours? This last question is quite direct, so you need to find a subtle way to ask it that fits into your conversation. For example, with advertising, we would ask, what are the factors that make you choose one advertising vehicle over another? Additionally, when you understand their personal and business goals and their needs, you will be able to show them how your product or service can help them achieve their goals and fulfill those needs. Our sales staff was drilled on these questions, given spot quizzes, and then assigned role-play exercises to make sure they understood what they were looking for each time. Think of every question your salesperson should ask in order to thoroughly understand the client's needs. For example, in all my years of buying suits, I've never had a rep ask me what I do for a living or what I have in my current wardrobe. Would knowing the answers to these questions help you establish deeper rapport and get deeper into my world while helping me to buy more suits? I worked with a large retail men's clothing chain in an attempt to get them to be much more effective at this. I even designed a program called Dressed for Success where the salesperson would have a presentation binder in the store to show people how to dress for success. The salesperson was even supposed to offer a wardrobe analysis, getting deep into the prospect's wardrobe to help flesh it out, round it off, and make sure that the client had appropriate attire for every occasion. On their own, most companies just don't go this deep. Yet, if you study their best producers, you'll find variations on all these rapport-developing techniques. Your job is to set up systems, procedures, and training that create a machine where every salesperson gets deep with your prospects. In the words of J. Abraham, If you truly believe that what you have is useful and valuable to your clients, then you have a moral obligation to try to serve them in every way possible. I believe this. I practice it. And when I work with companies, I work very hard to make sure they go at this from every angle possible. The best method of selling I've ever seen is when you can guide your prospects through a series of questions and they sell themselves on your product or service. For example, someone will call in from our radio ad and we will have a conversation that goes something like this. Rep, what was it about the spot that made you call us? Them, I like the idea of getting all my dream clients. Rep, what is a dream client for you? Them, heck, Microsoft would be a dream client. Rep. What would a client like that mean to your business? Them. Millions? Rep. And how many clients like that are there out there for you? Them. One hundred sounds like a good number. Rep. So if our program worked for you, it could be worth one hundred million dollars? Them. Well, if it worked, yes. Rep. Would you be willing to spend one hundred and ninety-nine dollars to find out if it would work? Especially if you only paid after you saw it and only if you thought it would work? Does that sound fair? them I'm not sure of course you need to have a close but to speed this up a bit here are a series of questions all designed so that the callers close themselves what's it costing if you're not getting those dream clients are you the type of person who likes to learn new things if they're going to give you a breakthrough let me explain a breakthrough it's when you find a method of doing something that dramatically accelerates your ability to accomplish your goals So. Let me ask again. Are you the type of person who likes to learn breakthroughs? What if you could learn the breakthrough and then decide if it was worth the money? Would that seem fair to you? Here's the close. Let's take a look at some dates for you to attend one of our web seminars. Do you have your calendar handy? Exercise. First, is there a way to guide your prospect through a series of questions in which your product or service becomes more and more valuable to her from her perspective? What would those questions be, and what could you do with that information to target that prospect better? Next, have a workshop to establish the 6 to 10 questions your salespeople will ask all your prospects to qualify them and find out their buying criteria. Drill your salespeople with role-play exercises and pop quizzes to make sure these are so ingrained in them that they never forget to ask them. Sales Step 3. Build Value After you have assessed your customers' buying criteria, you must begin to build value around your product or service. You've already built rapport. You've asked a lot of questions. Now you ask them, how much do you know about us, by the way? This is the time that you've got your little one-to-two-minute pitch that builds value and lets them know your reputation in the marketplace. An even more powerful way to do this, as you have learned, is to present your core story, Executive Briefing. This orientation should be targeted to the buyer, not to your product or service. As mentioned, I worked with a prominent Canadian retail chain called The Shoe Company. The CEO, Alan Simpson, is one of the better CEOs I've ever worked with. They also own Town Shoes, a more upscale line of shoes. They have the best education you will ever see in a shoe store. I've described the data they had on feet, fashion, and footwear, but did you know there's a thing called the threshold effect? This study shows that when you walk into a room, people make 11 different assumptions about you, such as your level of education and economic bracket, strictly based on your appearance. Your clothes, and yes, your shoes, add to or detract from the impression you make. If a shoe store salesperson can show you all this information, do you think it builds value in that store and that salesperson? How you introduce the education to your clients is as important as the education itself. You need to pre-sell everything you are about to tell them. For a clothing store, you might say, Our company has commissioned research on dressing for success. Surveys show that 90% of people who wear suits don't know the perfect combinations of styles and the impressions your clothes make on others. Let me take you through some of this data. Shoe store salespeople could say, Most people think the way in which shoes are made is unimportant, but did you know that there are 23 different decisions a shoemaker makes when creating a cheap shoe or a good shoe? Here, let me show you this. The salesperson pulls out the binder and flips through some of the data. In business-to-business situations, often your core story is the reason you are in front of them in the first place, as you saw in the examples of the newspaper company and the company that sold art to hospitals. It's easy to introduce market education as long as it serves the prospect. Whether you ever do business with us or not, you should know some of this data we've gathered on being successful in your marketplace. Exercise. Do a workshop on building value. Ask your team what builds great value around your product or service. How and where and what will you say to introduce your market education? to be the ultimate sales machine you need to define and perfect every single step of the sales process in this exercise you are perfecting a precise way in which you will introduce market education to your prospects sales step 4 create desire now it is time to make your client want your product or service and want it right now there are a lot of things you can do to increase this desire as I've mentioned two powerful techniques are One, lead them through a series of questions in which you intensify their need from their perspective. Two, present killer data that truly motivates your buyer to take action now. Be clear on this important point. Your buyers will be a lot more motivated if their current situation becomes unacceptable. To create desire, you must motivate your buyers using a combination of problems and solutions. Even if you are the one pointing out the problems that they haven't really considered, market data and your core story can do this well. Market data can show your prospects that their market is fierce with competition and can spotlight the high failure rate of businesses. Do the research to find out this information. If your prospects are comfortable with the current situation, they are not motivated to change. So, make them feel uncomfortable. People will act faster to solve a problem than they will to gain an unrealized benefit. People naturally move away from problems and discomfort to solutions. Once you have shown them the problems, paint the picture of their wonderful future with your products or service, and you will create desire. Just be sure you are painting a picture of their future and not just your products. Remember that features tell, benefits sell. Don't tell them what it is but rather why they need it. Exercise. Do a workshop asking all of your salespeople what are some pain points that would motivate your prospects to buy. Write down four of them. Then write down the four benefits of your product or service that directly address those pain points. Check yourself. Have you just written down features or benefits? Your prospect doesn't care that your product is faster or more energy-efficient. Tell them why that matters to them. How will it make their lives or jobs better? Sale Step 5. Overcome Objections What are the most common reasons that you lose a sale? And how many different ways have you developed to eliminate barriers to buying? The toughest objections are the ones you don't know. A talented salesperson establishes need and finds out the objections early in the sales process, but often when you go into the close, the hidden objections arise. Certainly, you can ask your client outright, what's stopping you from making this decision? Using a standard set of questions, top salespeople will qualify buyers' buying criteria right down to their toes before they even begin to sell. The better you qualify them, the fewer obstacles you'll have as you come into the close. Do another workshop with the broad question, how do we create desire in our clients to have our product or service? As I already mentioned, the best close of all is when the buyers make their own decision to buy, because it's the most logical conclusion they can draw from the information you've given them. Again, the core story should work really well to reset the buying criteria and bring the sale to a logical close, as explained in Chapter 4. You can also ask questions that show them the cost or downfall of not moving forward with your product or service. My salespeople ask questions such as, what is your biggest marketing challenge? What would it be worth to you if this challenge could be fixed forever? What does it cost you to not fix this problem? When prospects think of it like that and learn that working with us can fix that challenge forever, they close the sale themselves. However, even with great questions early in the sales process, an objection can still surface when it is time to close the sale. But if you remember that an objection is an opportunity to close, you will always be happy to hear one. For example, the client states this objection. I'd love to buy it, but I just can't afford it right now. You should agree that the objection is valid. Always agree with an objection. The clients will drop their guard. You might say, Well, that's certainly a good reason not to invest in this today. Meaningful pause. But let me ask you a question. Is money the only thing standing between you and the purchase of this product? At this point, if there are more objections, they will surface. If not, the client will say, No, if I could afford it, I'd buy it. This is called isolating the objection. It's standard sales stuff that is taught in every major sales training program, and yet every day I see salespeople make the mistake of not isolating the objection. I suppose the real lesson with any type of sales training comes down to the main lesson in this book. You must work on each of these strategies with pig-headed determination and discipline. That's the only way you're ever going to fully integrate any of this, so that it becomes synthesized into the way people think and operate. So when someone throws you an objection, if you isolate the objection, you have just moved a huge step closer to closing the sale. Now it's up to you to lock down the sale. You say, so if I can find a way for you to afford this product, you will buy it? If the client says yes, you have just closed the sale. You will now need to be more creative in the financing of the product or service or help create more desire showing how not buying it will cost them a lot more in the long run. Sales step six, close the sale. Although the goal is to set up such logical buying criteria that the prospect and the salesperson walk to the close together, it should also be stated that most people need help in making decisions. I had one client who spent two years deciding whether to hire me to help grow his business. I finally said to him, look, you don't need any more information. You already know as much as you're ever going to know. You just need to make a decision. Do you have what it takes to make the decision? Because that's where you're at right now. That's a hardcore close, but without it, he might have continued wasting his time struggling over the decision, when he could have been working with me to improve his business. He said, You're right. I do know. I want it. And he bought. I faced another prospect who had the same problem. He just couldn't make the decision, so I took him through a series of questions. Me. Do you believe that I can help you go to the next level? Client, yes. Me, do you honestly feel that my help will earn you far more than you will ever spend on my services? Client, yes, I know you'll be worth a lot more than I'll spend. Me, do you see that the problems I've laid out for you are going to cost you far more in the long run? Client, yes. Me, what do you think is the main result you're going to get from working with me? And how valuable is that to you? It went on like this as I asked about 10 of these questions until the client finally agreed in a fervor of decisiveness. Yes, let's do it. You may need to help prospects make the decision. It's okay to make them feel a little pressure. If you believe that what you have is good for them, close already. Another tried-and-true sales method is to assume the sale, saying things like, do you want that today? Or where do we ship that? I was a young man of only 19 the first time I saw a master salesperson assume the sale. It was my first day working at a furniture store, and the sales manager said to me, watch this. He grabbed a clipboard with an order form on it and walked over to an elderly couple looking at recliners. They tried two or three and decided which one they liked. He then said, where do you live? They told him, and he replied, we deliver there on Tuesday or Thursday. Which day would be best for you? The couple looked at each other and decided that Thursday would be best. He then said, as he put his pen to the order form, How do you spell your last name? They started spelling, and he had closed the sale. That was an interesting experience for me. Besides showing the technique of assuming the sale, it demonstrated how a salesperson has a huge impact on whether or not or even when the buyer will buy. When I worked as a real estate salesperson, I was asked to go out with another salesperson in our office, one who was having trouble closing sales. So we go out with a young couple looking to buy their first home. Seven houses later, we find the one they like. They start saying all the right things. The living room is perfect, the garage is great, the yard is large, and so on. If they were my customers, I would have casually said, well, let's get an offer in to take this house off the market. You can't imagine how many times I've seen a house taken right out from under you best to get an offer in that keeps other buyers away. A typical objection from this type of couple is, well, my dad is putting up the down payment for us, so we want him to see it. To which I would answer, great, we'll make that a contingency. If he doesn't like it, you don't have to buy it. How does that sound? Closing. But they weren't my clients, so I just observed. Here this couple is ready to go. A little push, and we'd be filling out that binder. Suddenly, the salesperson says, now, Don't rush into anything. Buying a house is the biggest decision you'll ever make, so you want to take your time. Slowly, my head turns to look at this salesperson in complete disbelief. I had to stop myself from reaching over, putting my hand over her mouth and saying, She's running a fever. Ignore her. Let's get that binder filled out. The salesperson had not only not closed, she talked them right out of making a decision. Important lesson. This comes from weak ego strength, as explained in Chapter 5. Inside, this salesperson was afraid to make the sale, do the close, or apply any pressure whatsoever because the fear of rejection was making her weak. That's why most salespeople don't close well. Weak ego strength and fear of rejection. So let me help everyone with this problem right now with the words taught to me by John Jay, the sales manager at that furniture store where I got my first sales training. You see, these people come in here who've been looking for a living room set for like four months. They've been to a dozen stores. Know what that is? That's weak salespeople who don't know their job. Your job is to take those folks out of their misery. Ever see someone who's been looking for six months, and then the day they make that final decision to buy, they can't wait to get that set in their home. Jeez, they'd take it the same day if they could get it. People don't regret when they buy unless they buy a lemon. Most people are thrilled when they buy. Your job, Chet, is to help people make that decision to buy. That is the greatest weakness in folks. They're not good at making decisions. If you truly believe that your prospect should benefit from your product or service, it's your moral obligation to help them make a decision and get on with their lives. Great speech. Stuck with me ever since. If you don't believe in your product or service, then by all means don't close. But if what you sell is truly going to serve that prospect, then go at him every which way until he buys. Other ways to induce people to buy faster and with greater enthusiasm include risk reversal and offering a free product or service with the sale. Can you add on something that motivates them to buy right now? Or can you reverse the risk? a concept that J. Abraham teaches, so all of their objections are neutralized. My company sells a comprehensive training program, and then we add on a few thousand dollars worth of bonuses. Here's our risk reversal, paraphrased. We're so sure that this program is going to help you, we're going to give you $2,000 in bonus products. Take this program and use it. If you feel it is not more than 1,000 times worth the investment, send it back and get a complete refund. And for your trouble, you can keep the $2,000 in bonus products. When we did this, our sales doubled. And yes, you have that one out of ten who might buy it just to get the bonuses, but you still had nine more sales you would not have gotten if you didn't make the offer in the first place. A money-back guarantee is a great way to take away objections, but the idea of offering a bonus that they can keep soups it up quite a bit. Exercise. Write down eight things you can do to close more sales. What can you add that would encourage people to buy right now? How can you use risk reversal? What gifts could you give away with purchases that would motivate your buyers to buy? What product or service can you get for free that would be of great value to your prospect? And then do workshops with your staff on overcoming objections and closing techniques. There is nothing that increases sales skills like role-playing. Some people hate it, and I don't care. They have to do it if they work with me. I will be gentle at first, but I will get every salesperson role-playing. I worked with a group of industrial technicians who had to get used to selling a new product that was highly technical. When I started working with them, not one of them was very good at any of the techniques I was introducing, and not one of them liked to role-play. I role-played with them for six months, one-on-one, with everyone else listening. By the end of the six months, every one of those technicians could do a decent job of every aspect of selling the product. It was impressive to watch the progress. Even though in the beginning, I'm sure they all hated me. Sales step seven, follow-up. The process after the sale is so important that the entire next chapter is devoted to it. Conclusion These seven steps are core sales skills and procedures. Just as basketball coaches must constantly train their players on layup shots and blocking, sales managers must constantly train their reps on polishing every angle of the seven steps to every sale. Smart companies build tools, policies, and procedures that support these seven steps. The more standards you set, the higher the performance you can expect from every level of talent. Only constant practice and repetition will create master-level salespeople. 11 follow-up and client bonding skills how to keep clients forever and dramatically increase your profits If you look at most companies and their efforts to grow their business The majority of their focus is on the first six steps of the sales process to get new clients They think their job is finished once the sale is closed Yet it costs six times more to get a new client than to sell something additional to a current client If you want to build the ultimate sales machine, you need to have highly procedurized follow-up and follow-through. The hardest thing we do is to get the attention of the client in the first place. Everywhere you go, there is a commercial message in one form or another. As the number of messages grows, people's memories shrink. This is called the clutter factor. It means that if you touch down with someone and get her attention, you need to do it again and again and again as fast as you can or she will cool off and forget about you. Once you've made the sale, you may have achieved top-of-mind awareness, but if you are out of sight, you are very quickly out of mind. You need to have excellent follow-up procedures to stay at the top of your client's mind. Follow-up, the seventh step to every sale, is so important that it gets this entire chapter to itself. This chapter will give you the tools to evaluate and improve the follow-up and client bonding procedures you already have. It will also show you how to devise and implement new, more creative and cutting-edge procedures to take your current client relationships to a whole new and much more profitable level. When I worked for Charlie Munger, I had a sales rep who was fantastic at getting in the door and terrific at closing sales. However, it was not in his nature to bond with people. He just made the sale and moved on. I started putting the three P's into place to set policies for bonding permanently with clients. I created mass opportunities for bonding, such as trade show parties and award ceremonies, which you learn about in Chapter 7. But I also had one-on-one trainings and even role-play exercises to teach the salespeople how to ask the kinds of questions that get them involved in the prospect's or client's life, as covered in the previous chapter. In that example, we were selling business-to-business where each client can be worth a lot of revenue. Hence, entertaining on a grand scale is a wise investment at every turn. For business-to-consumer selling, you need to implement bonding opportunities on a smaller scale. For example, if you own a restaurant, spa, hair salon, or boutique, you need to have procedures in place to make sure your people establish relationships with clients and make them feel special. Example Here's an example of client bonding mastery. One time I took 18 people to Spago, when it was the hottest restaurant in the country. There was a trade show in town, so all my advertisers were there from all over the country. Lincoln, Nebraska, Pine Bush, New York, Albany, New York, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Miami, Florida, you name it. Most of them otherwise might have never had a chance to go to Spago. I had to set the reservations a month in advance, table for 18 There were three movie stars within ten feet of our table, which was thrilling for my clients. It gave them something to talk about when they went home, and another opportunity for me to bond with my key advertisers. Suddenly a few waiters and Wolfgang Puck himself, owner and celebrity chef, came over to our table with free samples of hors d'oeuvres. Wolfgang walked over to me, using my name and telling me how wonderful it was to see me. He didn't say again, but it was implied that he knew me, even though he didn't. What he did do, quite effectively, was make me feel very special. After all, how many people bring 18 guests to Spago? Additionally, the sight of Wolfgang shaking my hand and telling me how nice it was to see me impressed my clients. It impressed me so much, I'm mentioning it almost 20 years later. In the best restaurants, the owner or manager will go table to table, introducing him or herself and seeing that everything is excellent. Believe me, if you don't have procedures for this, it will never happen by accident. What are your client bonding procedures to make sure you are keeping clients happy? How many do you have? The cool-off factor. Enthusiasm is contagious. When you are with a prospect, your enthusiasm rubs off. The second you leave, the prospect begins to cool off. But your job is to keep the prospect hot on two things, you and the sale. They need to stay hot on you, not just on what you're selling. If you made a good impression, you have to keep those cards and letters coming. If you didn't bond very well during the first six steps of the sales process, follow-up is even more important. Remember the story of the company that advertised with me three times to utter failure. Because I followed up so heavily in the face of failure, I gained enough trust to get it to spend even more money, resulting in a dramatic success. Remember, trust and respect are the largest part of the sale. Every minute that a prospect doesn't hear from you after you leave their office, his respect falls off, out of sight, out of mind. The real success formula for selling? Trust and respect equals influence, equals potential for control, equals more market share at every mutually beneficial opportunity. You are a major part of why they buy which means that you must reiterate your connection in your follow-up correspondence. Examples coming up. But you also want them to stay hot on your product or service. If you use the techniques you've learned in this book and presented the clients with a ton of useful information from your core story, they stand a better chance of remembering why they bought your product. An excellent brochure or leave-behind helps as well. The more you remind them, the less chance they will ever forget why they bought Putting the hot buttons, the pain points that made them want to buy in the first place in your follow-up letters and phone conversations is one way to reduce the cool-off factor. If you come away from a meeting or phone call without knowing those hot buttons, you are in trouble. As you learned in the previous chapter, successful companies know every aspect of a client's criteria for making a purchase. The deeper your understanding of your clients, the better the opportunity to help them and the more market share you will acquire. Your goal is to become such a bright spot in your client's day that they actually look forward to your calls, letters, and emails. Keep things exciting and interesting. You must become part of your client's lives in order to stay in their top-of-mind awareness. This requires massive, diligent, and entertaining follow-up. Make the relationship fun and entertaining by incorporating into your follow-up such things as cards, letters, games, jokes, and gifts. For business-to-consumer companies, you need to have a constant-touch system to keep the relationship strong. This may mean a VIP card that your clients can use to get express service or special benefits. It may be personalized invitations to come to a special VIP sales preview event or to remind your clients of their next scheduled appointment. With the Internet, this can be inexpensive or even free. Again, it should be stressed that education-based marketing is an excellent method of staying in touch. No matter what you sell, you can find valuable information that your client will appreciate receiving. Every company today should have a major initiative to build email databases and relationships with its buyers. Drive as many folks to your website as you can, as often as you can, and for every reason you can think of. Let's look at a practical example. At the time of this writing, I went to the official websites of Disney, Warner Brothers, and Universal Studios. Looking around, I could not easily find anywhere to subscribe to be on an email list to receive promotions. If I owned a studio, the most prominent graphic on the website would be an offer that would capture data to begin a relationship with every fan coming to the site. One of my goals would be to collect millions of fan emails. This would hedge my investment, giving me an opportunity to promote my movies in advance and build an even stronger brand with moviegoers. The home page should give ethical bribes to fans to get their email. Enter your email address and win a chance to have dinner with a star. Surely you could create dozens of juicy opportunities that would make folks want to give you their email addresses. As you learned in Chapter 7, create a community, a great place to visit and get involved. Imagine the power of giving fans the possibility of tracking a movie for months and building excitement to see it on that critical opening weekend, all free, over the web, no media costs. No matter what you sell, you can create a better relationship with your buyers using the Internet. But the main point is to have constant follow-up efforts with buyers, especially with those who did not buy. Set yourself up for great follow-up. Rule... Your follow-up is only as good as your first six steps, and you should be considering your follow-up during every step of the sales process. Here are the goals and questions that should guide you throughout each step of the process. Create rapport. What professional goals did you note during the meeting? How can you help prospects achieve those goals? What personal tidbit, common interest, or funny story can you refer to later to remind them of your bond? Qualify and establish need. Do you understand prospects' needs and objectives? What are their most pressing problems and how can you help solve them? Build value. What do they consider valuable? What benefits or add-ons would appeal to them and build the value around your product or service? Create desire. What are their hot buttons that can increase their desire? What is the pain point that you can use to remind them of why they bought and why they will want to keep buying from you? Remember that people naturally gravitate away from problems and toward solutions. Overcome objections. What are their objections and how can you put them to rest? Close. What closed them? The more effective you were and the more information you gathered in steps one through six, the more penetrating your follow-up will be. When I owned an advertising agency, one of my clients was a magazine. In order to research for this client, we had the salespeople come in from competing magazines and do a pitch so we could see what our client was up against. Here's what they did for their pitches. Competitor 1 talked about their magazine. Competitor 2 talked about their magazine. Competitor 3 talked about their magazine. Competitor 4 talked about their magazine. This was astonishing to me. I literally could not believe that not one of these magazines asked me any questions. This is weak selling at best. When all you do is talk about the product or service you're selling, what is the only thing you can focus on in your follow-up? There's not much else to say in your letter, but thank you for the meeting, and by the way, did I tell you our product is great? There's no opportunity for quality follow-up because you didn't find out anything about me or my problems or my buying criteria. The follow-up letter becomes no more interesting to the client than a direct mail piece from a total stranger. Needless to say, I trained and role-played and quizzed our sales staff to ask a lot of questions with the goal of learning the client's entire decision-making criteria and quite a few professional and personal tidbits about the client. By the time they were in the follow-up phase, my sales staff had plenty of information. Ten Steps to Great Follow-Up Follow-up step one. Send the first follow-up letter. If you sell business to business, get a letter off to your client within an hour or two of your meeting. When I went on sales calls, I would call from my car, dictate a letter to my assistant, and have it faxed off. Do you think it would impress the client to get a follow-up letter within an hour, when she knew I wasn't even back at the office yet? Here's a good letter structure. One. Start with something personal that you remember from the meeting. Example, that was a great story you told about your daughter. In our next meeting, I have a similar story to tell you. Two, include a compliment. Example, you certainly seem to have a great grasp on how to make your company succeed. They are lucky to have you.